have a cup of coffee for the discussion this morning, Anthony? I do have a cup of coffee. That's good. And I have mine as well. So it's been a couple weeks since we last recorded. Just I know this is take two of a episode that we've been kind of working on sorting out in our own minds and the best way to approach it. I think that uh, this is going to be a very in-depth conversation that we're going to have. And I uh, don't necessarily want to have like a rigid conversation about it, but I'm more or less a hopefully a conversation that naturally flows with all the pieces of information that we want other people to be aware of and, and know about. Less of a presentation and more a conversation to spark ideas. But before we do, I want to welcome everybody to the Sacred Stew. I am your host, James, and this is my co-host, Anthony. And you have arrived at the home of everything that has to do with Germanic paganism, theology, history, philosophy, anything to do with our native faith of our folk, we like to discuss it here, usually on the deeper levels of the subject. Uh, for those of you just tuning in, this is not your normal sort of educational programming or regurgitated material that you find throughout the social media stratosphere, but rather we like to have a good natural conversations about things that mean something to us not just intellectually, but spiritually within us and as individuals and as a community of fellow Germanic pagans as well. So before we get on to the conversation, Anthony, uh, do you have any announcements or anything that you'd like to mention here? Maybe follow-ups from previous episodes or anything like that? We did bloat since the last episode. And that was that was uh I really liked that. Your the your house to blow was very good. Um the rune pool was super interesting. Yet again we got more babies being born. Uh that's about it that I can think of. Yes, and uh on the baby tip, I wanna officially welcome a new member of our family here, Millie, um, our brother Kurt and his wife just gave birth to a new baby girl and she's beautiful and adorable and want to send my best wishes to you and your family. Um, I don't have a whole lot of announcements as far as announcements per se on my side of things, but uh, I did want to mention that uh, we are going to be getting together here in about a week or so um, to do the name fastening or what many people probably call the baby naming ceremony, uh, which is a very important, not just spiritual event, but also social event for our, our kindred, our clan um, together. How much do you know about the baby naming ceremony uh, and the name fastening, Anthony? A little, so I know it was generally done at a, at the nine-day mark, as it was believed that 
the entirety of the soul did not settle to the baby or get tied to the baby until the ninth day. Um, and it was, it was a taboo thing to name a child after a living relative, but most were named uh, after an ancestor or a combination of names of ancestors. Yeah, and there is a huge importance to this specific ceremony um, just with that alone. But the other huge component of it is the social uh, contract, essentially, is what you can call it, of the father recognizing the child as his and the father uh, essentially giving the rights of, of his blood or soul to that child and the protection of the hemenia of the family. Uh, so during the ceremony, I mean, everybody has heard a little bit about like the sprinkling of the water and, and, and such, but uh, one of the more, most important parts of it is when that father is examining the child and recognizes that child and sits the child upon his lap um, and, and essentially in the community recognizing that is his offspring that will have the rights uh, to his inheritance once he passes and also have the responsibility of taking uh, care of the father upon his death as well. So it's very important, not just spiritually, but socially and legally within our communities to have these ceremonies for our children upon their birth. I, was just saying, I believe we've also mentioned in previous episodes that the actual choosing of the name is a pretty is a very big deal because somebody could be misnamed and it would cause a lot of problems for that person. I don't even remember what episode that we were talking about that in, but I believe it had to do with uh, the soul episode, which I think is episode six in season one, if anybody wants to go back and check that out. So I've had a couple questions uh, from people, and at some point, a couple of these questions could possibly be whole episodes that we do and discuss, but I don't want to leave people hanging too long. Uh, one of our kinsmen up north had asked me about Leifner's flame um, and what I think that is. Uh, Anthony, do you know what Leifner's flame is? No, I have not heard of Leifner's flame. So he, he was asking me essentially uh, about Leifner's flame and he wanted to know what my thoughts on those were. So Leifner's flame is really only talked talked about kind of as an allegory or a metaphor and that's exactly what Leifner's flame is is it is a metaphor for something uh and, it, and that something is a specific power that one is granted uh the mention of it in the Eddic poems uh deals with when Odin had sung over a a horn of mead that had what they called Leifner's flame in it and then Svipdag, uh, or Oder, Freya's husband, had drinking of this mead. And it gave him the power to break the chains uh, 
that have been placed upon him and in, in that was holding him, holding him hostage, essentially, in place. It's mentioned in a few other places uh, as well. Leifnir, uh, Leifnir itself uh, was a sea king. That's the only thing that we know he's given a as one of the sea kings in a list of sea kings in the uh, historical documents, but it never exactly tells us anything or much about who Leifnir himself was. However, in the Eddic poetry, whenever Leifnir's flame is referenced, it is speaking metaphorically as a kenning of a specific sort of type of power. And these powers are attained through the Galder chants, as we know from like Odin's songs in the Havamal and Groa's uh, Galder as well. I hope I answered your question, Brandon. I know you and I had a private conversation on it, but I thought I would put it in the episode because there might be other people out there that have that similar question as well. Want superpowers? I guess uh, all of us do, and then perhaps that's why many people seek this path is because they're looking for superpowers of some sort. Do you think that uh, the powers that are described in the lore and and the different things that could be done, do you think those are real things that humans can achieve or become in possession of? Well, to a certain extent, I think to use the term real is ambiguous, but I mean, I don't know. Like, I would like to think that if we are indeed Im imbued from Hoden, Hodor, and Lodor with aspects of them, that to a small degree we might be able to attain something like that. But then at the same time, too, even if it is possible, I feel like that could also be blocked because there are a significant amount of people that would gain powers like that and really only cause chaos so i don't know like i mean i guess i would hope so but i don't i don't have a good answer for it what about you maybe we can go search youtube and find the the person that knows the answer to that question that has those powers we can find some guru out there <laughs> What Do I think that they're real? Yes, I actually think that the powers as described are real. No, I don't think that those powers are uh, done from a specific person uh, or I guess can be attained by a specific person. But rather, I think that the gods and goddesses and the supernatural beings that uh, are a part of our faith... Uh, can grant certain actions uh, for those things to be achieved, such as healing, turning men's uh, hearts from hate to peace, uh, freeing one from bonds. I think these are certainly things that uh, can be physically observed in our lifetimes and previous lifetimes as of things that have happened by supernatural means, not necessarily that that specific human individual was able to do those things himself. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Like to use a, a gamer reference, you can get like a one-time use power or like in Skyrim, you might not have a spell 
a full spell, but you got a one-time use scroll that lets you do something. Yeah, kind of, I guess. Or, I mean, if you... Hey, sorry, I'm a gamer. That's the only way I can visualize it. Well, you know, I mean, sort of like that. Uh, if you look at it uh, as in the context of bloat, when we make bloat, we make bloat for specific helps or bjarga of the gods for specific needs that are caused by forces which seek to cause chaos and destruction and pestilence in our lives. Uh, in that, during that process, a galder is sung. And we can look at it like when Zvitdag goes to uh, Groa in, in her cairn and uh, seeks uh, for her to sing the good galder to him that essentially that those blessings or those powers or those things uh, are given from forces or beings outside of our physical realm, but empower us to achieve those things. That makes sense. I don't feel like it... Well, it does answer the question of are the powers available to us, which would mean no, there is a a level of intervention that happens so i don't know man i've just seen enough crazy stuff in my time that i got a hard time giving hard yeses or hard no's on anything so for me it's open-ended well and i think that it gets to kind of the crux of our conversation uh, that we intend to have tonight uh, which is part two of the christian conversion of our faith uh, and for those that haven't checked it out, please go back a couple episodes. We have an episode titled Germanic History, The Christian Conversion Part 1, uh, to get a footing on this discussion and where we're at with it. And the reason why I think that this is comes to the crux or, or the heart of um, that conversation, because it comes down to uh, how we view uh, our interactions with the divine and i think it's really important that people understand when we're when you're trying to discover your your faith or your belief in whatever that may be that you learn where those ideas and concepts originate from Uh, because there's a lot of i call it the horn of muddy water uh that gets passed around out there where people put all sorts of ideas out there and many of it much of it is uh just regurgitated content but on a deeper level um those concepts and those things are ideas that have been put forth in the past that are just recirculating themselves so what i want to talk about tonight is where do these concepts come from uh are our gods real gods uh what does that mean when we say gods and and are they just aspects of nature are they just symbols of some type of archetypal knowledge or power or energy sources um and where do the ideas for this even come from um anthony you want to take a swing with this just to kind of get the conversation started a bit well starting with the r I mean, I'll go hard. I don't only believe that our gods are real. I believe that all the gods of all peoples are real. 
and they can simultaneously be a quote-unquote real being and also be a symbolic archetype and also be an aspect of nature because they exist on a much grander higher point of consciousness and existence than we do what does that mean they're bigger than us we we are lower on the totem pole than they are so when we try to explain we cannot complete we cannot completely and accurately describe beings from a higher level than we are to a, a, a two a two-dimensional being or two-dimensional thing that is only uh, length and width cannot describe a three-dimensional being that is that also has height it can only see the two what what can be described as the two-dimensional proportions of that three-dimensional being there are aspects we're not going to be able to know That's there are things that may not necessarily may make sense intellectually but we can intuit certain things i agree wholeheartedly um i think that uh when we jump into this conversation though we have to be a little bit more more specific because uh i i'll just give an example i recently had a conversation uh, in a group that i'm in and the conversation had to do with uh essentially monism or a oneness that there are people out there for example that believe that there is a uh, unity that happens in creation and that this single source unity is like a divine force that is the life force of all of all of existence and that this life force is to be essentially connected to on a higher level on an individual level that gives one essentially a gnosis of reality um, with their connection to that one single source. Uh, in this conversation, I was explaining our Germanic uh, cosmology and how our belief system works. And the person had made the comment uh, that I was so wrapped up in like Norse uh, mythos that I am not seeing the whole picture of the whole world. And my reply was very simple. And I said, well, that's because I'm a Germanic pagan and this is our belief system. This is what we believe. We don't synchronize with other faiths. And he said, well, if you take the Eddic and the Skaldic poetry away, are you still pagan? If we never discovered any of those texts that now exist, that we have now built our faith upon, uh, would we still be pagan? Anthony, how would you answer that question? So, yes, I believe we would still be pagan because to me, the, pagan is one polytheistic and two follows natural law. And when you look at natural law, nothing, there, there are no singularities. There is always multiplicity, whether that's following, you know, the number two, three, whatever. There is always more than one. 
and using the as above, so below occultic axiom. If down here, there is, there, there is no form of true singularity, then as a, then by extension, as above, there also has to be multiplicity, which in, to my understanding, immediately negates and uh, I forget the specific term for it, but it, it basically shows that the concept of a singularity is false. And I think a lot of people that preach that monism, that singularity, they've got a lot of things that sound good until you put them up against natural law and the way th the way things the way things are i think it's a lot of mental gymnastics you said a couple really important key terms in in what you just explained the most important one i think was your mention of natural law uh because when we're having this discussion about what essentially breaks down to the the theological difference between uh, monotheism and polytheism, uh, this is what we're speaking of. In polytheism, there is no singularity that exists. Everything exists in multiples, as you mentioned, Anthony. Uh, but we have people today that follow what they call a pagan path, that very much believe in this monist idea and they essentially attach to it a emanating theory of the gods wherein the gods uh, exist by emanations of that single source and that the gods are within this natural law are, are essentially just representations or symbols of different actions of natural law for example odin uh the wind is odin's breath um was one example given to me and these concepts these ideas aren't new they go back thousands of years uh, uh theologians and philosophers have debated these things for thousands and thousands of years but we have to define what we're talking about when we say natural law, and we have to understand where these concepts come in, because this has everything to do with the way that our ancestors were converted to Christianity. Uh, in part one, we talked a lot about how it started and began, and the motivations behind it, and the forced conversions, the wars and such. But there was a, another aspect of the conversion uh, that we're going to discuss tonight, and that is how Christians were able to convert our ancestors from their natural faith and religion to that of a foreign one, and how we became adherents to this type of uh, theological conception that was different than what we ever believed. And what I'm going to propose is that 
philosophy was the car that was used to drive us to that destination. We need to talk a little bit about what is the difference between philosophy and theology. Anthony, how would you define the differences between the two? Well, we've touched on this a handful of times in personal conversations. And the best way that I can describe it is theology is a way of explaining things in life, existence, spiritual and cosmological things through a specific religious context. So, for instance, there is Christian theology, there is Germanic pagan theology, there is very loosely Wiccan theology or Taoist theology. And then there is philosophy, which is a, a secular, atheistic way to ex explain those very same concepts with absolutely no religious lens. Perfect, perfect uh, explanation. Um, I love it. You took your notes. <laughs> um, yeah, no, philosophy looks for essentially rational explanations and justifications for beliefs, for why do people do certain things? Why do we believe this? How does this work? Theology does the same thing as philosophy, except for theology presumes of faith, as you said, the, a context of belief behind it. So uh, when we speak of Germanic philosophy, we are presuming the Germanic faith or belief in that system as being a system of truth for us as a collective and also for us as individuals, at least those that profess that faith and live that way of life. So let's jump into what this philosophy is and theology is uh, in context of natural law and where that comes from, that idea, because there are a lot of quote-unquote individuals and groups that identify as Germanic pagan, pagans that will you'll constantly hear this, this term uh, thrown out there of natural law, natural law, natural law. What is that natural law? Do you have an explanation of what this natural law is, Anthony? I don't have a simple answer. If I was, the best way that I can describe it is the things that govern the realm in which we live. Uh, the sun rises in the east. The sun will always rise in the east and will always set in the west. Uh, it always takes a male, uh, or with certain species, it always takes a male and a female to reproduce. There are certain asexual species, things like gravity, um, the speed of light. These are all aspects of natural law as I would do my best to explain it. Right. And I think that everybody would agree with those 
um, explanations of natural law in the observable world or realm that we're in, we would all agree. I don't think there's anyone that would disagree with those points of natural law. But from a philosophical perspective, uh, natural law is much deeper than that because it assumes that there is a certain intrinsic value uh, of a belief system that comes from the divine, not necessarily just the natural aspects of reproduction per se, um, or the natural phenomena of gravity, uh, but that even morals themselves are derived from natural um, uh, intrinsic values that exist in all of nature because when you say natural law it has to apply universally to everyone so how would you bridge in your explanation how would you bridge the physical to the spiritual or metaphysical whatever term people want to use these days right <laughs> that is uh, a very good question uh, because there has to be a bridge either the natural law is universal for all or there is a supernatural aspect to natural law. Now, I asked somebody tell me once, you know, he's obviously a proponent of the natural law philosophy. And for those who don't know, the, that specific philosophy is stemmed by the Stoics uh, that came out of Greece. Uh, all Western philosophy itself comes essentially from Plato as we know it. Um, of course, he had his teachers and people he learned from. His work survived and it influenced pretty much all of Western philosophy, even to the modern day. So it's important to understand a little bit of the history and the semantics of where these ideas and concepts come from. So natural law itself comes from the same concept that Plato explained essentially about his forms of nature. Uh, the conclusion of this philosophy is that there is a single source for everything that exists. Now, this idea wasn't unique to Plato. He obviously had teachers and people that gave him these ideas and concepts that he passed on. But I just wanted to make mention of that because it's important to know where the original concepts are derived from. So, in my view, Western philosophy has failed the Western man. And I say that because we can see the state that we're in today with our not just our communities, but our own individual selves uh, in the connection to our people and the connection to our culture in the connection, or I guess I should call these disconnects to these things, because as a folk, as a people, uh, we're very much just lost. We have no connectivity to that. We have no tradition which binds us together. And I would lay blame for all of this on Western philosophy, specifically Plato, him being the father of these ideas and concepts into the Western mind. So the way that I bridge the gap between the two is that there were essentially two paths that um, 
we can go down here. One, we can take the Neoplatonic view of things, which essentially erodes the communal or tribal belief um, into something that's individual. Gnosticism has its roots in these ideas. Uh, it's important to realize that that specific path has to deal more with spiritualism rather than religion. And the spiritualism part of it is that every individual will have its unique relationship to that divine source or that divine power. Whereas when we speak of our faith being a religion, we are speaking of the collective whole on how we perform and bridge that gap to our gods, to our people, to our families, and to ourselves. So for me, I see natural law in the most basic of concepts, um, as you mentioned, reproduction, gravity, etc., as being true, but not necessarily true to the divine. And I believe that there's more of a supernatural um, explanation of things. When I use that word supernatural, I know people will bring this up because someone else has with me. They'll say, well, nothing is outside of nature. So how can something be supernatural? What do you think about that question, Anthony? I agree with people that say there is nothing that happens outside of nature. For me, and the way I look at it, the term supernatural implies those aspects of nature and natural law that are beyond the aspects of our realm. So, I mean, that can be powers, things, um, you know, we've touched like using like the, the L's, for example, I would call the elves supernatural beings, not that they are outside of nature, but the source of their existence is at a higher nature than ours. Or, um, you could also say a higher vibration. And I think where a lot of people get hung up, whether whatever their philosophical or theological viewpoint stems from, I personally believe that the mistake is made when talking about supernatural or again, metaphysical, whatever term you want to use, is that we look at it as it all has to fall under the natural laws of our realm and natural the natural laws of our realm are only a, a piece or a subsection of greater natural law anthony you did an excellent job explaining that because i don't think i could have found those exact words that would have explained it as good as you did um and this is something you know that i i see is the the bridge that gaps that idea and i think a lot of people that attach to this natural law are essentially 
um, at least in the philosophical context of it, are looking for an individual connection to the divine or quote-unquote the supernatural in a way that makes sense to them. Um, and a lot of the reason why Germanic folk fall into this trap is because there's so many books, there's so many things out there that uh, essentially explain these philosophical principles um, for the last several thousand years uh, that people take as a truth or the way that they perceive the world around them. You know, it goes back to those forms. They're just perceptions of the individual that Plato wrote about. Now, this is a really big thing because um, when we talk about our belief as Germanic pagans, as believing in the gods, uh, as being real beings, uh, this is something that's certainly supernatural in belief, that we believe that there's deities of a higher nature or a higher order than us. And if people need a really basic concept to understand what I'm talking about, think of the food chain. You know, there's predators, different animals, different things are on different levels of the food chain. And the gods would be a level above us because man is not the end all and be all of the universe. There are things that exist outside of human beings on this planet. Now, I think that because the person I had a conversation with, uh, he kept saying to me, well, you believe the gods are men? They're not men. The gods aren't men. You know, he would use the examples of the myths as they're just allegories and metaphors of this and that. And they're not men. You keep describing them as men. And... You know, that's not exactly what we're talking about when we speak about the gods being beings higher than us. They're not of our nature. They are certainly many things beyond the human concept that we could even describe with our words. But they are real powers and beings that exist that interact with us and have interacted with us since the beginning and creation of our folk. That's the, that's the gap. That's the bridge right there. That's the divide between the philosophical concepts and the theological concepts of our cosmology, the way that we see the world, the universe, and all of in all of existence. Now. You'll remember in season one, our episode uh, called the Yggdrasil, the tree faith of our folk, um, we talked about the gods in different stations and how they came to be, and we spoke about uh, different sorts of beings existing uh, and how they interact and things that they created. Um, for me, this is a fundamental truth. This is the litmus. This is my true north in my life by understanding this cosmology. What happens so many times is people will take these ideas that come from outside of the Germanic worldview, the Germanic cosmology, because they've only been taught what people today are taught. And 
they don't understand the way that our ancestors viewed the universe, the 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 tradition that is passed down uh, in the mythology, in the folklore, um, is one where we see that gods existed, uh, and they came to being, and they interacted with us, and sometimes took human form. So, of course, if you don't believe the gods are real, then this would have no bearing on you and you would have no conceptual idea of how our Germanic theology is, is comprised in, in the context of the way things interact with one another. Um, and what's important in the discussion here, because now I want to start getting over to a discussion about the Christian conversion and, and how those things happened, um, is that we understand the ideas that came a long time ago that have perpetuated for thousands of years and where those ideas came from. Those ideas were not Germanic. Those ideas were Greek. They were Abrahamic. They were Dravidian. They come from sources other than our own ancestors, other than our own folk. And we need to always question where these ideas come from. So I want to read something because I heard somebody else speak about this actually, and it's really important to our conversation about the Christian conversion because one thing uh, some people will say, and, and they use the term natural law, but they will explain that people that are Germanic pagans that are attaching themselves and believing that the gods are real beings are essentially Christians themselves, that we are adopting a Christian fallacy of believing like the gods are uh, in human form or shapes and that they live in these palaces and that they do these things and do that thing, that that is the Christian infection into the Germanic uh, mythology. Um, that's an important thing for us to really break down and decipher what it means and how this conversion happened in terms of a mythos and a cosmology because this is a false notion that lead many people astray when they're trying to actually connect with their gods or connect with their folk and connect with the divine. Anthony, what would you say to somebody if, you know, you were having that conversation and somebody said, hey, by you essentially trying to make the gods into human forms, into human concepts, uh, they're nothing but signs and symbols. These stories are to teach you about the signs and symbols, but by you actually trying to internalize that and make these into real beings, that that is the Christian infection uh, or, or ideas that are plaguing the soul of our folk. Well, to we both know I'm I'm the guy that likes to keep it simple, and I would argue that for that to be true, then it wouldn't just be our faith; it would be any ethnic faith that would have that view. So, if our ancestors believe, if our ancestors believed, if our ancestors truly believed that the gods were nothing more than archetypes and personifications of natural 
uh, phenomenon, we would be the only people that had that view because I've got native friends. And when I talk to them about their spirit spirituality, they believe that their, that their deities, I, uh, I'm drawing a blank on the names, but like a Buffalo calf woman that she came down to earth and went back in the Greek, in the, in Greek polytheism, Zeus was so real that he came down and had children with human women. So, no, I do not buy that that is the that us viewing the gods as real is the is an Abrahamic infection. I would counter the argue that I, I would make the counter argument that looking at our gods as fake or as only personifications and archetypes would truly be the Christian abrahamic infection and what they're trying to do what about those who say that this idea of essentially turning our natural law and our explanation the archetypes of the gods were were turned into men whenever the christian conversion was happening by them bastardizing our stories and injecting this Christ, Christian mythology into that mythos, which they say now today we're relying on essentially Christian text to understand uh, a faith that actually never existed. I would counter that by we have plenty, we, we have the sagas and we have the poetic Edda if, if, if we're only going off of written sources. And, uh, from our tradition that were verbalized and written down long before the Christian conversion that when they speak it comes across as our ancestors very much viewed the gods as real beings uh, real masculine and feminine beings and again there are religions, the, the, the Vedic religions, the Taoism, Taoism, Shintoism, Aboriginal uh, religions down in Australia and across the world that are relatively untouched or completely untouched by Christian, by Christian influence that firmly believes that their deities are real beings. So again, to try to say that we as Germanic pagans are essentially Christians for viewing our gods as real, for that to be true, it would it would our our folk would be the only people in the whole world that looked at the divine in that manner. Period. I agree with that statement. So let's talk about how the the conversion actually happened. I just wanted to add one thing. 
Um, that to me, arguments like that are people that try to make that argument that our gods are fake. There is a lot of mental gymnastics that they do with half truths and conjecture that oftentimes from my perspective, it's really only meant to get you caught up in having to try to explain irrelevant things that have no base. So if there is a base, answer it, but keep it as simple as possible because oftentimes people coming from the cults of personality perspectives, or even like when looking at the Christian conversion, quote unquote, intelligent people, all they did and all they do to this day is mentally beat down other people with mental gymnastics into submission for their view. We just got to keep things as simple as possible. Just because it's simple doesn't mean it's false or doesn't mean it's not valid. Right. So the question is then is how did the Christians uh, create uh, an atmosphere that made our Germanic folk adherents of the Christian faith? Did they pollute the mythology? Did they hold everybody at sword? Uh, we, we've already discussed in part one of the Christian conversion about, you know, s some of that happening uh, as far as the wars and the way that it was spread by Charlemagne and, and Constant, uh, Constantine. Uh, but let's examine a letter here because the Christians themselves, they've, they've written about these things uh, for centuries, about how the conversion actually happened. And we can see an example of this in a letter which Pope Gregory, although I don't think he was Pope at the time he wrote this letter, but he sent to uh, an abbot in England, uh, uh, Melitus, that explains very well how this conversion happened. Um, let me read this letter here. It says, To his most beloved son, the abbot Melitus, Gregory the servant of the servants of the God, we have been much concerned since the departure of our congregation that is with you, because we have received no account of the success of your journey. When therefore Almighty God shall bring you to the most reverend Bishop Augustine, our brother, tell him what I have. Upon mature deliberation on the affair of the English, determined upon that the temples of the idols in that nation should not be destroyed, but let the idols that are in them be destroyed. Let holy water be made and sprinkled in the said temples, and let the altars be erected and relics replaced. For if those temples are well built, it is requisite that they be converted from the worship of devils to the service of the one and true God, that the nation, seeing that their temples are not destroyed, may remove error from their hearts, and knowing and adoring the true God, may the more familiar resort to the places to which they have been accustomed. And because they have been used to slaughter many oxen in the sacrifices to their devils, some solemnity must 
be exchanged for them on this account, as that on the day of the dedication, or the nativities of the holy martyrs, whose relics are there deposited, they may build themselves huts of the boughs of trees about those churches which have been turned to that use from temples and celebrate with solemnity, with religious feasting, and no more offer beasts to the devils, but kill cattle to the praise of God in their eating and return thanks to the giver of all things for their sustenance to that end. While some gratifications are outwardly permitted them, they may the more easily consent to the inward consolations of the grace of God. For there is no doubt that it is, it is impossible to efface everything at once from their obdurant minds, because he who endeavors to ascend to the highest place rises by degrees or steps and not by leaps. Thus the Lord made himself known to the people of Israel in Egypt, and yet he allowed them to use he allowed them the use of the sacrifice which they were wont to offer to the devil in his own worship, so as to command them in his sacrifice to kill beasts, to the end that changing their hearts, they might lay aside one part of the sacrifice while they retained another, that whilst they offered the same beasts which they were wont to offer, they should offer them to God and not to idols, and thus they would no longer be the same sacrifices." This it behooves you, your affection to communicate to our aforesaid brother, that he, being there present, may consider how he is to order all things. God preserve you in safety, my, my most beloved son. So this is a letter from Pope Gregory to abbots and directions to other quote-unquote Christian missionaries on how to convert the pagan populace, the Germanic pagans that lived in England at the time. For me, this is the blueprint. This is the smoking gun right here of how these conversions happened after they have already conquered the people. They didn't necessarily take the faith door to door with a sword and say, believe this or, or don't believe this. But this is, is the blueprint. What do you get from this? The approach was subversion. Going back to our Anglo-Saxon episode where they talked about how, again, using the English as an example, that when they, when they um, converted, they would have to renounce Odin, Thor, and Freyr and acknowledge the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that the the first steps to the conversion were only changing the names of essentially changing the names and the aesthetics because the 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 church very much recognized the power of ritual and the effect that 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 had on a community so they couldn't go in and say you can't do the sacrifices you can't um you can't do the do the get togethers and 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 so they changed it to where okay well you can do the sacrifices but you're doing them to the quote unquote one true god 
you can you can get together at your churches, but it is not to the devils. It is to the one true God. And in a way, it was a psychological move in that, oh, we are going to destroy their idols, but keep their temple standing. Their gods aren't going to strike us down. So we can say that that's because our God is more powerful and protected us from these devils. So it was a lot of, while there was conversion by sword in certain aspects, most of it was subtle and through the substitution principle. Yeah, exactly. And this, I mean, besides this, the replacements, you know, as they very much clearly wrote out in their blueprint, you know, not to destroy the temples, instead go in there, take out the idols of their devils. And this was one aspect of, of how they absorb the folk into the into becoming Christian adherents is uh, they already knew we gathered at certain times of the years for certain things. And this is why uh, almost all of the major Christian holidays today have their roots in, in, in paganism, uh, specifically Germanic paganism, is because that is when our people, our folk, would gather throughout the times of the years and come together uh, as a community. Um, and then they would replace those gods. Now, do you think that there is any Christian manipulation of our mythological uh, stories that we told each other? I know you kind of mentioned earlier a little bit about the the poetics of it being older than the Eddas that are recorded, and, and, and therefore not, but do you think that there was any intentional sabotage of our stories of our mythology to our people yes and no so using snorri as an example when he wrote the prose edda he was a christian man this was after pretty much all of europe and most of iceland had been completely converted so he was writing pagan myths from a Christian point of view. So obviously you're going to see those influences in there. I don't believe that at this point with 99% of the conversion having already happened, that there was a need to actively prevert myths on all accounts. And like when he was writing the poetic Edda, he wasn't doing it to preserve the myths. He didn't give a damn about the myths. What he was attempting to do was to pre preserve skaldic poetry and create a means to create a means to teach it. So to to say that there to say that there was no christian influence at all in anything is false because you know snorri and authors after him that wrote about it they wrote down things from their theological view so of course it's going to have that that in there but to say that they did it with a malicious intent to change the faith to me is false right and 
The reason why I asked that question is because this is, again, we have to get back to the roots of what these concepts are. Um, and they all come back to the Greek philosophers, the Western philosophy of Plato uh, that has permeated every aspect of the way that we see the world. Um, and by the time that these texts were recorded, uh, these, I mean, we've already spoken in in season one about the grammatical uh, necessity of passing this tradition on because of the difficulty of actually changing the patterns of the stories themselves. This is a fact. So it wasn't so much, as you said, them intentionally trying to bastardize the faith with their information, but rather them recording the stories with their Christian worldview, which was a Roman worldview. Uh, they were learned men, uh, and they had studied under the church. And besides Snorri, we can point at Saxo and other writers as well in this context, because they, what they were trying to do wasn't distort the information, but rather they were trying to attach this information to the story of Rome, to the origins of Rome. This is why... Saxo, when he's writing about the Danish history, he is essentially creating this history and gluing it together with the story of Troy. And this is how the folk comes. The Snorri's Eddas, we see a very similar thing at the very beginning, the Gilfaganing, where uh, it is how these men came to the north. Uh, from Troy, essentially, um, and and that's they're re just repeating what they learned. It'd be no different today, you know, with our children and the things that they learn in school, uh, what they believe about uh, the quote unquote scientific understanding of our universe and how they perceive that. You know, they learn. You know, these are the planets in our solar system. They don't know anything else except for what has been taught to them about those things, as I'm sure most of us are. But what we do see when it comes to stories is that the church was very adapt, and this might be where some of people's hesitations with accepting the mythology come from, is that with folklore specifically, the church was able to use it as propaganda, and there's a distinct reason why this was done with folklore versus uh, the mythological tales. So anybody can go pick up one of Grimm's books of fairy tales and, and such and, and read these stories. And they're almost all filled, almost all the stories are filled with references of devils and, and demons and people doing different things and sacrificing to all sorts of things and essentially making it seem like it's a bad thing. This is how their propaganda worked. Um, it's very obvious when they do it. It's obvious to the extent that they're not hiding that these things are happening, but instead they're calling them bad. They're calling them devils. They didn't try to change the information of the story. They just changed the context of it. And 
with folklore, it was easy to do because as they're setting up these churches, and essentially it, they became havens for people for food as well. So they would come to the church, and the church would, just, would, would give them food and educate their children in the Christian way. They would use these stories essentially to scare the children from believing in the old gods and goddesses of our people. They were not able to do this, and I'll repeat it again. They were not able to do this with the mythology itself, with the mythos, with the cosmology that we have in the Poetic Edda and other skaldic sources because those stories were more widely known and believed. They weren't able to change those stories because of that. People knew the context of those stories. It was rooted in their hearts. It was rooted in their souls from childhood. Folklore, on the other hand, is mostly filled with Christian propaganda. But you can extract information about practices and beliefs from that folklore if you're able to see and read between the lines of that propaganda. Yeah, well, and I think another thing that made it easy, too, is there was always subtle differences in folklore tales, and everybody always told a folklore tale just a little bit different. So there was, it was significantly easier to change something into propaganda that did not have a rigid form to begin with. Exactly. And that's because folklore is regional. It was based in specific regions. Oh, you guys go out in the woods here and offer this to this deity or spirit? Okay, well then this is what you do in the folklore is you change those deities or spirits into the devil. It's not them hiding that people were doing those things. I mean, we already know that... Uh, some forms of our polytheistic beliefs carried on and our paganistic practices carried on, often in secret, but the Christian conversion was much more overt than what people often try to say it was. You know, a lot of people try to say that, we, that the uh, Christians essentially completely corrupted the texts, they completely did this, they did this and this and this, but it wasn't so subvertly done like that other than going into the temples and replacing things. They didn't change the holidays. They didn't change the temples. They didn't change the mythology. Now, what they did is later on, Christians tried to reconcile ideas about the old uh, Germanic stories and the mythology by, by trying to attach it to Christian belief. This didn't happen until Sophus Booge. He was the essentially the person that proliferated this idea uh, about the Germanic mythology having its roots in uh, Israel and the Christian uh, belief system. Sophus Bouge, who lived in the 1800s, was the person that 
propagated that idea. And he was obviously very successful at doing that because there's a lot of people today that believe that. The problem is, is Sophus Bouge realized that he was incorrect. And most people that follow this line of thinking have no idea where that idea even originates from or that the person that originated that idea had a change of view later after they read Victor Ryberg's works. So what you're saying was Bouge was bougie? <laughs> Bouge was bougie, yes. He was very bougie. So it's important to understand how these people arrived at their conclusions as well. Um, we know about the different schools of thought when it comes to the, I guess you would call it, pagan mythology. So we have the nature school, which believes in what? That any mythology is only a ethnic people's explanation for natural phenomenon. Right. And we can recognize that this line of thinking today, when people talk about natural law and their concepts to uh, this oneness that Plato and Pythagoras uh, spoke about in their works, um, you can also see a little bit of the archetypal sort of concepts uh, where it starts to begin, where, for example, Thor becomes thunder, etc., Okay, so after the nature school, we then have the Euhemerus school, which we've mentioned before in the past, but give our listeners uh, a rundown of what that consists of. The Euhemerus school essentially makes it to where the deities in any mythology uh, were human beings that were elevated to the status of godhood. So you see this in... Like we mentioned before, Snorri Snorrison's Gilfaniging, the tricking of Gilfi, where at the end, it's uh, it, Odin and the Aesir were just powerful mage, mages uh, from Asia, from Troy, that deceived the Germanic folk into believing that they are gods. Then we have the Interpretatio Romano. What does that consist of? That is the precursor to the biblical view or the biblical school where it tie, tries to tie everything back to, to Rome. So you'll see that like Odin is Saturn or Zeus or um, Frigg is Hera, Freya is Aphrodite, etc. And then we have the biblical school of thought. What is there? That is tying everything back to the Abrahamic faith. Balder is Jesus. Loki is Lucifer. Uh, Odin is Jesus. Thor is Jesus. So on and so forth. And then we have the epic school, which formerly was known as the mythic school, which essentially takes the mythology as being true. Um, the epic was a modern term attached to it to describe a methodology for understanding the mythic interpretation. 
So that's what that school consists of. And then, of course, I can't forget Archetypal, which I almost did. Uh, the Archetypal School, as we've already said a couple times now, was deducing the gods to certain energies or forces within nature. You, you can see a lot of these different schools of thought that developed over time, uh, how some of the ideas uh, commingulate with one another in different ways. Uh, but all of them, except for the mythic school, the epic uh, school of thought, views the gods as not actually gods or not real in some sort or fashion. And these schools existed, well, most of them existed before uh, Snorri or Saxo wrote about the mythologies. And these are ideas and these are the ways that the Christian used to convince our people to convert to Christianity. They used these philosophies to uh, essentially deconstruct the concepts our folk had of our gods you know, where they would say, no, your Thor is not the god of whatever. Thor is not god or a god. He is thunder, or that the wind is Odin's breath, and it's universal for others. And they would take these concepts, uh, essentially from Plato, in his descriptions and emanating from the forms, and try to apply them and explain to our pagan ancestors, uh, these are the reasons why you need to convert is because of this. And within that philosophy, Christianity plays its role because, um, and I know that there's some scholars that will disagree with this, but Gnosticism was actually pre-existent before the character of Christ was created. And I'm going to say that one more time. Gnosticism existed prior to the character of Christ ever being created. It happened in Hellenistic uh, Greece and a movement that happened um, where essentially Gnosticism being that one is able to acquire gnosis or knowledge of the higher being or the single source entity in their relation and feel this individual connection to that source um, through understanding. And they used the mythologies as initiation rituals to undergo that gnosis, as they called it. So this thought is what was used to explain to our ancestors to convince us that our gods are not real for our people, that there is a universal faith, uh, that Jesus essentially became the logos or the word of the creator. Now, I myself have the opinion that Plato, Socrates, Pythagoras, although while very learned men, they were highly influenced by people outside of their society. And I know that some people will debate me on this, but I firmly believe that these ideas of a monad, of a single source entity, 
come from Abrahamic faiths, that it was introduced from the Jewish people into Europe via Hellenistic Greece at the time, as far as in practice, and that you did have people, wise men, scholars, philosophers, that would travel to learn. Pythagoras is said to have gone to Egypt to learn at some point in his life, uh, that learned these foreign concepts and brought them back as well. Well, so I can add one one slight connection in my head, and it might be a stretch. We see the first recorded form of monotheism coming out of Egypt. I am not historically versed enough to know if Jews as we understand it now or as we understand it at the time of Rome were the same thing in the time of Akhenaten. But again, coming from the area of Egypt, where the first first recorded form of monotheism was introduced, it would make sense that from that pool, we get Judaism having a one God, and then that subtly through the lower class starts influencing thinkers outside of their region. Right. Well, and we know from Roman sources that they would adopt foreign gods and actually bring them back to Rome to worship. Uh, we mentioned before about many times when they would go to war, they would actually pray to the enemy's gods and that if that those, those gods of the enemy uh, granted them victory, that they would bring them back and have a place for them um, in, in Rome itself. Um, I, I don't know if the Jews got this monotheistic concept from the Egyptians or not. Um, it's, I guess it can be de debated, but we know from the biblical sources, uh, the canonical ones and even non-canonical ones, that uh, the Jews at one point believed in many gods and according to the Torah was commanded not to worship any god except for this one specific god that many now call Yahweh. Um, but I think that during the captivity in Babylon, this is where the uh, assimilation of ideas began to happen among uh, more Indo-European folk um, during that time frame and seeped into Greece via, because we know that Pythagoras was native to the same area that the captivity was was at and that these ideas had spread and he had learned them and his mathematics obviously we all know the Pythagorean theorem today uh, with triangles and such but his concepts of religion and faith um, were written about in a way that was very mathematical uh, where he deduced this philosophy of a monad or a single godhead that exists that everything comes from. For the Greek philosophies and philosophers, this became an attractive idea and one which they wrote about and taught about in their schools. Um, but what happens, or what I guess people forget to realize, that when all of these things are happening, this is at the lowest point in, in Greece's history, when they stop actually believing the gods were real. Their society was on the brink of destruction. 
um, it was in decay. Uh, people were living outside of uh, what you would call natural law um, and doing all sorts of absurdities and abominations. That's important to understand because this is going to come back to where I said that Western philosophy has failed us. Because our society, our people today, rely so heavily upon Greek philosophy and the perception of the world around them based on these ideas. They don't even realize it. But yet our society today is reaching the same decomposed state or deconstructing state that Greece was at the time that these philosophies were prevalent. I was actually thinking on just touching the same, pretty much the same topic. So one thing that I was going to add is that for anybody that thinks are, we're stretching it in our analysis of how the Christians influenced our pagan ancestors, I would urge you to look at the world today. We're both in America, so we'll use an Amer America as an example. We are, we are in a state where there is little to no true spirituality in America and degeneracy is on the rise. And what are they doing now? They are trying to take any form of religion out of, out of circulation, not just the Christian God, our God across the board. And how are they doing it? They are going to the schools with certain information to teach the children because children are innately going to believe what adults tell them. And then they're also giving this same information to uneducated parrots that will repeat the lie and tell it's the truth. So the aesthetics are different, but what we are seeing today with trust the science and, and, and everything else is a parallel to what was happening during the, the end of Greece and the end of our pagan and the end of paganism to our ancestors. Which brings me back to my to the question I asked you earlier that somebody else asked me that I haven't answered in this episode yet is if we take away all of the uh, material that we have from the poetic Edda and other skaldic sources and things that we know uh, were part of the mythology of our folk. Uh, if we take all that away, that discoveries never happen, we don't have any knowledge of it of today, would I still be a pagan? So it is a complicated question. I would still obviously live under natural law, and I would still have a wonderment and amazement about nature around me, but I would not be a Germanic pagan. I would not be a pagan that has a certain way of looking at things. However, fate is the decider of all, and our people spent countless generations passing these stories down for hundreds and thousands of years, and those stories were recorded, and those stories are known today. So my, my path is set. I have the historical reference I have the information that my ancestors wanted me to have. I have everything I need in a faith from within my own people. I don't need to reach out to foreign philosophers, not from 
our foe. I don't need to reach out to foreign religions to borrow from them. I have what I have in my hands today because my ancestors told these stories for thousands of years. And thus, I am a Germanic pagan. I'm not just a pagan. I am a Germanic pagan with a very specific path and a very specific worldview. And I hope that in these episodes, as we've been going through the mythology and theology of our people in history, that other others that may have differing viewpoints on these same topics can see the light and the reason behind these things. There's a reason why Tacitus wrote about in his Germania about how we don't intermingle with others and that's how we worship our gods a certain way. For those people that live today that say that our ancestors were worshiping signs and symbols in the past and that we've quote-unquote evolved, in my view you are doing nothing but denigrating the veneration that we should have for them, the respect that we should have for them with the information that's been passed down to us. It wasn't bastardized by the church. When they did bastardize things, it's very obvious and blatant. I am a Germanic pagan because that's in my blood. I am a Germanic pagan because my ancestors have given me a path to follow. I'm not a person that's going to follow Plato or any of the branches of philosophy that came from him. Stoicism is another big one today that many pagans attach to, and some even attach to this Gnosticism. But these philosophies are all rooted in individual connection to the divine. And what separates Germanic paganism from these concepts and ideas is our connection to our community through specific rituals that connect us to our gods. That's the difference. That's the message that I want to leave on, that our ancestors left on. And I want people to be able to be able to separate the shaft from the wheat and look at the ideas when they're presented to you and recognize when they're foreign and what is the purpose behind them and what is the end result of those ideas. When our folk were strong, we believed in the gods. When our folk began to diminish, we left our faith and we left our paths that we have lived for thousands of years prior to. And now today, the result that we see is the state of society that we live in. Could it get any better than that, Anthony? No, I, I think that's about damn perfect. <laughs> Did you finish your cup of coffee? Oh, dude, I've had like two more through, through all of this. <laughs> I just had one big cup. Yeah. No, I've walked around and made like two or three cups. <laughs> Nature, as most define it today, is the observable world they perceive around them. And some recognize a life force within this. They see this life force as divine energy. They see divinity all around them in 
nature and recognize this divinity as a single source from which for them it is an immutable fact that all life emanates and shares the essence of its divine source in singularity. These ideas are ancient and originate from Greeks, Dravidians, and Abrahamic faiths. These ideas have been often associated with Plato, Pythagoras, and Jewish mystical systems. In the Germanic tradition, the theological, eschatology, and cosmological structure of the entire universe in our existence, we view nature as many observe it and recognize in its absolute essence it exists in multiples. In Germanic cosmology, there is never a one. There is never a singularity of existence. It does not occur within nature. There is always multiples. This distinction is the theological difference between monotheism and polytheism. For the Germanic soul, within this cosmology exists forces of chaos and forces of order. These forces are sometimes elemental and sometimes willful independent beings of a supernatural state outside of our realm of existence. Our gods are real. They are conscious and willful forces within nature. Nature is the result of Orlog, which is the cosmic memory. I am not with or at one with any divine being, nor is anything else in creation at one with another. Instead, I am a being brought forth from my ancestors through the gods of our folk with a destiny and a purpose. Our cosmology recognizes the difference between beings that exist within nature and that not all of these beings share the same origin and purpose as the Germanic soul. The purpose of the Germanic soul is not the same as the purpose of those foreign to our folk. The origin of our folk do not share the same origin as those foreign to us. All within nature may be subject to the laws of Erlog, as even the gods are subject to their fates. The existence of the Germanic soul is life-affirming and creative, and our fates lay in different places than the fate of others. This is the Germanic belief. This is what our ancestors have told us. There exists no Greek, Dravidian, African, Arab, or Jew which can change our beliefs in these things, for the Germanic soul recognizes its origin and the truths that we hold there. This has been the Sacred Stew. I am Anthony. My co-host is James. Y'all have a good night. <laughs>